This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It is now my pleasure to introduce my very good friend and colleague, Pamela Kuntz, who is a medical oncologist who specializes at NETS and the director of the Stanford Neuroendocrine Tumor Program. Um, Pam has extensive experience taking care of patients as well as conducting clinical trials. Um, She and I are colleagues on a number of um, national committees and working groups um, and uh, have worked closely over many years together. And I'm I'm very pleased to invite her up here to talk about recent advances in neuroendocrine tumors. I'm going to have trouble with this again. Hello, everybody. Nice to see you. Um, I'm excited to be here. These are my disclosures. So I'm going to talk a little bit about clinical trial basics. Is that good? Clinical trial basics, some recent advances, some of the new ongoing clinical trials, and um, how you can learn about clinical trials. So why are clinical trials important? Well, clinical trials are a key research tool for advancing medical knowledge. Clinical research is done to learn whether a new approach is safe and effective and which treatments or strategies work best for certain illnesses or groups of people. But what's interesting is that only about 3% of the adult population participate in clinical trials. This is actually quite different than pediatric oncology where the large majority of children participate in clinical trials. So let's debunk a few myths about clinical trials first. So these are listed as truths. So clinical trials are not better than standard treatment. I think a lot of people go in assuming that that's the next best thing. It's experimental, and it's a clinical trial for a reason. They often are very hopeful and optimistic, but they're not proven to be better. Clinical trials are not just for patients without other options. In fact, they may be designed specifically to test a drug earlier in a disease state. You will not unknowingly get a sugar pill or placebo. This will be described explicitly in the beginning and the enrollment period and in the informed consent. If you decide to participate, you can change your mind. And then lastly, you cannot directly compare results of one trial to another. That's really more for your doctors, but I think it's an important reminder for patients also. If we have results of two separate trials, you can't directly compare the result of one trial versus another. So what happens if you go off of a clinical trial? Patients can go off for a variety of reasons, progression, side effects, personal preference. Your doctor will also discuss other options with you, including standard treatments and other trials. And interestingly, the frequency of monitoring may feel very different on a trial versus off a trial. So for example, a clinical trial may have very rigid monitoring every two months or every three months. And in the real world, standard of care may be a bit different. Tumor measurements are not considered standard outside of a trial. We'll talk about the tumor measurements specifically in a few slides. So clinical trials can be sponsored or funded by various different entities. So there are investigator-initiated clinical trials. These are often smaller. The idea is initiated by an academic physician. It's usually at a single institution or a limited number of institutions. And the funding is usually sponsored by a company, but the idea is really from the academic physician. Industry-initiated are 
all phases, we'll talk about the phases in a minute, the idea is initiated by the company. It's often many sites, many different institutions, and the funding and the drug supply is often by the company. And then the cooperative group clinical trials are many phases. The idea is initiated by a cooperative group, which is a group of academic institutions, and the funding is from the federal government, from the NIH or the National Cancer Institute. So let's talk about phases, just to get everybody on the same page. So preclinical is work done in the laboratory. Dr. Bergsland mentioned that Dr. Nakakura has a lab, so he does some of the preclinical work. So we want to know first, does it work in mice? Phase one is testing the safety of a specific drug or strategy. It's often any tumor is eligible for a phase one trial. It's relatively small, 15 to 20 patients, and it's really defining the best dose of the drug and is the drug safe. The purpose is not to test effectiveness at that stage. A phase two trial is to determine the preliminary efficacy. So it's also generally limited to a specific tumor type, and it's usually limited to a small number of patients. Phase three are the much larger randomized studies. This does test efficacy, and it usually tests it compared to a standard. Sometimes it's placebo, and that's only if ethically at that stage doing nothing is reasonable. And um, it is usually 200 to 500 patients, so much larger, and it's essential to assess the survival differences. And phase four studies test long-term safety after a drug is FDA approved. So every drug has to go through all of those phases. It can't just jump into one phase. So if it's proven safe in a phase one, it moves to phase two. If it's proven to have some early efficacy in phase two, it moves to a phase three. And if it passes phase three, that's when it gets submitted to the FDA for approval. That entire process can take a decade. So it's a lengthy, um, tedious process. I think that many of us who are clinical trial investigators are trying to figure out ways to be a little bit smarter about how to get some of these studies done more quickly. So types of trial design, there are a number of different types. Dose escalation means you might test increasing doses to see if they're safe. That's done in phase one. A single arm study means that every patient enrolled in the trial gets the same drug. So there's one type of treatment. And then a randomized study is that phase three that I mentioned, occasionally phase two studies, but there's at least two different treatment options. And um, sometimes it's a control treatment or a standard treatment versus the experimental treatment. And the randomized study is really the gold standard. So let's talk a little bit more about randomization. That can be sometimes confusing. So this is the National Cancer Institute definition here. So participants are divided by chance. That's not your doctor flipping a coin. It's actually usually done by a computer. And those, that chance separates patients into different groups or different treatment arms. And those are then compared. This using chance, this, and this second bullet point is really important, it means that the groups will be similar and that the effects of the treatment they receive can be compared more fairly. So what it does is it really allows us to get better results. It evens out the men and the women. It evens out prior, maybe past medical history that patients may have. Um, for example, for net trials, we want to be sure that patients on both arms may have both been equally exposed to somat somatostatin analogs. 
and then blinding, what does that mean? So study participants, caregivers, or outcome assessors, meaning the physicians or statisticians, do not know which intervention is received, and this reduces bias. They've shown that when patients are unblinded, there is often an effect where the treating physicians think that patients do better than they really do. So design and interpretation of trials. So in order to get into a trial, you have to meet certain eligibility criteria. So a specific type of net, specific grade, maybe a specific primary site like pancreatic versus small bowel. Is the cancer progressing or not progressing? And have you had a specific type of prior treatment? So it's really a checklist that the doctor and the research team go through. And then the goals of the trials can be different. So this is defined as the measure of success. So do we want the tumor to shrink? Um, Ideally, we would like that, but that can be specifically measured as a response rate. Are we measuring progression-free survival? How long does it take for the tumor to grow? Or are we measuring overall survival? How long do patients live? And then we also look at safety. So we're going to use as an example one of our most recent clinical trials. This was a trial that I led nationally that we presented at um, ASCO this past year. Um, The name of the trial was ECOG 2211, and it tested CAPE-10, which many of you have heard about. And this was specifically in pancreatic nets. So this was a, I think I can point up here. Oop, might go back. No pointer. I'll just describe it. So in the orange circle, the R means randomized. So patients were randomized one-to-one. So half the patients got the top arm, which is arm A of just Temidar by itself. And then half the patients got the bottom bar, which is arm B, and they got capecitabine and temozolomide. So about 70 patients on each arm. Um, Over below the gray box, you can see that patients were stratified. What that means is that they were we made sure that there was balance between the two arms of patients who had had prior everolimus, prior sunitinib, or were concurrently on octreotide. This is an example of a progression-free survival curve. I'll give you the punchline, and many of you have heard this, but the CAPE-TEM arm won, so that arm did better, and that's in orange. But let's walk through this together. So the x-axis on these survival curves represents time, so in this case it's months. The y-axis represents the progression-free survival probability, which means the percent of patients free of progression. The dash line is the median, and so typically we'll present it as the median progression-free survival. Separation of the curves is good. You want to see that there's a difference. And when we went into designing the study, we had a hunch that the Cape Temarm would be better, but we had to prove it. And the hazard ratio means what is the hazard of progressing or the risk of progressing. So a low hazard ratio, so below one is good, and a low p-value is good, meaning that it's statistically significant. And so here, a hazard ratio of 0.58 means that we reduced the risk of progression by 42% with the combination compared to just Temidar by itself. 
And so then how do we, just a few more definitions of looking at response rates. So RESIST is a fancy acronym that stands for Response Evaluation Criteria in Solid Tumors. And this is the way that radiologists and investigators measure response over time. And we're going to use a little cartoon that's on the next slide. But a lot of patients ask, well, are you measuring all of the tumor spots? And the answer is no. So for purposes of this, we pick a maximum of five spots and a max of two per organ. So if you have multiple liver lesions, we'd actually only measure two of them. And then we measure those over time and calculate a percent change. And that percent change falls into one of four categories listed here. Complete response, partial response, stable disease, or progressive disease. But I think, let's go, I think my cartoon is here. So this is a picture of a liver, and the two yellow spots are tumor spots. And we're going to measure those over time just to give you an example of how we measure response over time. So that first lesion is 2.5 centimeters, and the second lesion is 6.5 centimeters. So we measure that at baseline. Then a patient undergoes another scan, in this case after three months of treatment, and those tumor spots have shrunk. And so you can see in my table here, after three months, it's a 17% shrinkage. So that officially still falls into being stable because it can be um, as little, sort of between 20% growth and 30% shrinkage. And then after six months of treatment, there was further shrinkage, and the patient had 44% response, which officially puts it into the partial response category. So there's a lot of effort that goes into really specific quantitative measurements of tumor spots. I've had... um, Many of my patients who are in the room know that um, if you go off of a trial, a lot of patients will ask, but where are my tumor measurements? And I think we're starting to do that a little bit more routinely as part of standard of care. We have a program at Stanford that does that. And I know that um, because often that's an objective or a subjective measurement if it's not as part of a clinical trial. So in terms of the Uh, CAPTEM trial, we looked at that response rate or the percent of shrinkage in both of those arms. So in the temozolomide alone arm, patients had about a 28% shrinkage rate. And in the combination arm, they had a 33% shrinkage rate. There, the p-value that's 0.47 over there just means that there was really no statistical difference between the two. It has to do with the fact that the study was not designed to specifically look at this endpoint. But the take-home really is that in both arms, there was about one in three patients had tumor shrinkage. That's actually really important because many of the drugs that we have for NETs, like octreotide, lanreotide, sutent, affinitor, don't actually shrink the cancer. So this is important. And um, the other drug that you heard about earlier today, 177 ludotate, also shrinks the cancer, about one in five patients. The other key outcome measure are adverse events or safety. How safe is the drug? Because that could also be a problem if it works really well but is not safe. Um, That would be difficult. So adverse events are collected and recorded by the research team. The severity is assessed on a scale of one to five. So mild, moderate, severe, life-threatening. And we certainly hope to not see it be so severe as causing death, but that is measured. Adverse event relatedness is also determined. So is it related to the study drug? 
And um, so moving on to the key ongoing net trials, um, a big table here, but to say, I will just highlight a few key points. So there are some really exciting new trials that are ongoing. Um, the top row shows one that's specifically in grade three neuroendocrine carcinomas, um, a specific subtype that has long been neglected, but we're trying to learn a little bit more about. So we're specifically looking at CAPTEM and platinum etoposide in that population. The second is a brand new study that just opened. I'll go into a little bit on the slide right after this, so I'll skip this for a minute, but that's cabazantinib versus placebo. The third row is a study looking at embolization, three different types of embolization of the liver in patients with NETS. So bland embolization versus lipiodol versus drug-eluting beads, three different types. The fourth row is a study being conducted in Germany that's actually comparing ludotid, well, a different type of PRRT. So it's ludotriotide versus affinitor. And we're trying to learn a little bit more about which of all these therapies that we now have available might be better than the other. And the only way to do that is directly in the same trial. And then the last row is looking at, um, it's essentially two parallel studies. One is CAPE-TEM plus ludotate versus CAPE-TEM. And the second is CAPE-TEM ludotate versus PRRT. So it's combining therapies to see if that helps. So let's take a look just at this because this is the largest study right now that's ongoing in the U.S. It's about a 500-patient study. It's being led through the cooperative group. So as I'd mentioned before, this is a federally funded study, and it's using cabazantinib versus placebo. So cabazantinib is a cousin of sunitinib. So anything that ends in an IB is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It's a pill, and it blocks a specific tumor growth pathway. In this case, it's one that affects the blood vessel growth growth pathway. And because of what you learned from our discussion of how trials are designed, you can see that it's randomized two to one, meaning that two out of three patients will get the cabazantinib and one out of three will get placebo. So you may ask, well, why is placebo indicated or allowed or ethical in this condition? So this is actually after patients have already had an SSA and everolimus. So they have to have had at least two lines of therapy. And um, this just opened in July. I think a few patients have been accrued nationally. It often takes a little bit of time to get this up and going, but we're really excited that um, we're studying a brand new agent in this class. And it's, as you can see, pancreatic and carcinoids are eligible for this. So how can you learn about trials? Well, I would say the most important first step is talking to your oncologist and your net specialist. It can be incredibly overwhelming to look at clinicaltrials.gov by yourself or to look at some of the institutional websites. Um, so talk first to your oncologist. There are other resources available, including Stanford's UCSF and other institution websites. Clinicaltrials.gov is searchable, but you'll come up with like 3,000 net studies, so it's a little hard to sift through. Um, NetRF also has a filter looking at net studies, and you can look at that as well. So a couple of key take-home points. So we've made many advances. I think Emily probably went over some of the advances this morning. But really, it's been since 2011 that we've had this explosion of new treatments, which is a great problem to have. I think what we are struggling now with is what's the best first treatments? How do we sequence therapies? And I think we'll get some answers to those questions over the next few years. Clinical trials are really critical in moving the field forward. And I would say that... Um, 
Emily and I actually just sort of related are helping to plan a clinical trials workshop where all of the net physicians come together um, at a meeting and try to help plan the next generation of clinical trials. So we're really eager to try to think about how to incorporate questions about PRT, immunotherapy, and personalized therapies into the next generation. I'd like to also personally thank all of the clinical trial participants who may be in the room. We really value and are grateful for your participation. So I think that is it. Um, So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.